Chapter Nine of There's Laughter in the Air, Radio's Top Comedians and Their Best Shows. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenever. There's Laughter in the Air, Radio's Top Comedians and Their Best Shows by Jack Gaber and Dave Stanley. Chapter 9. Amos and Andy. There are some astounding things in the annals of radio entertainment, but nothing there recorded matches the story of the program known as Amos and Andy, and that's the truth. The program first went on the air over station WMAQ in Chicago on March 19, 1928, and it kept going until February 19, 1943. It returned to the air eight months later and is still going strong. The program and its creators are radio history in concentrated form. Freeman Gostin, Amos Jones, and Charles Correll, Andy Brown, do not see the end in sight. They already are looking forward to television, and are considering the possibility of having the characters portrayed by Negro actors while they continue to supply the all-important voices so familiar to millions of Americans, the voices not only of Amos and Andy, but also of Madame Queen, Brother Crawford, Ruby Taylor, the Kingfish, and Lightning. These characters have become a part of the American scene, as surely as have any in the most famous books and plays. The year 1944 was the twenty-fifth anniversary of the gostin Corell combination, which started as the result of a meeting in Durham, North Carolina, on August 12, 1919. A radio team was not the immediate result, but from then on the seeds of collaboration began to sprout. Corell was born February 3, 1890, in Peoria, Illinois, where the families of his parents had moved from the South during Reconstruction. He learned stenography in high school, and upon graduation got a job as stenographer in the office of the State Superintendent of Construction in Springfield, Illinois. After a year, he returned to Peoria to learn the stonemason's trade from his father, and, incidentally, to learn how to play the piano. He became quite a player, worked in a movie house for a time, and then got a job as dramatic coach with a Chicago firm that specialized in putting on amateur shows around the country. He toured the country for a year, putting on pageants and other amateur shows, before he was sent to Durham to stage a musical for the Elks Lodge. The job was a bigger one than he had expected, and he sent out a call for help. Freeman Gostin was the reinforcement rushed to the scene. Gostin was born on May 5, 1899, in Richmond, Virginia, and was educated there and in Atlanta. He became a traveling tobacco salesman, was in the First World War as a radio operator in the Navy, and then decided he wanted to do theatrical work. He had played in amateur performances, and was proficient on the then-popular ukulele. He started a mail campaign with the Chicago firm that employed Correll, 
and convinced it that he was just what it needed. His first assignment was to Durham to help out Corel. After the pair had made the Durham Elks happy with their staging of the review, they went on as a team and finally landed in New Orleans in the fall of 1920. There they had their first taste of broadcasting. An experimental station wanted to test its equipment, and they were invited to sing a song. They sang Whispering. A woman living four blocks away telephoned that she heard them fine on her crystal set. They continued with the amateur theatricals, and eventually were called into Chicago to become department heads in the home office. This was just about as far as they could go in that field. The routine and lack of opportunity began to pall on them, and becoming more and more conscious of the advances of radio, they began to wonder if they shouldn't take a stab at it. The Edgewater Beach Hotel had a station called WEBH, and one day in March 1925, they braced Bob Boynell, who ran it for a chance to broadcast. They thought they'd probably have to pay a fee for doing so, but this wasn't the case. They used a ukulele to provide accompaniment for their rendition of, Yes, sir, that's my baby. Bonnell gave them something to eat, and said they could sing each night around 11.30 if they cared to do so. No pay, of course, but a meal. They did this work for eight months, still holding their paying jobs. They found time to prepare a radio sketch for Paul Ash, who was a hot band leader around Chicago in those days. Then Harry Sullinger, manager of WGN, the powerful station of the Chicago Tribune, sent for them. They made up their minds to tell Sullinger that they didn't have time to take on another show for nothing but that they might consider ten dollars a week sufficient inducement to find the time. They were flabbergasted when Sullinger said he was prepared to pay them one hundred twenty-five dollars a week apiece. They began work in November, 1925. It was good money, but they earned it. From 10 a.m. until sign-off the next 2 a.m., they sang songs told jokes, served as announcers, played the piano. After about three months of this, they were called in by Ben McKenna, general manager of all the Tribune's radio work, who wanted to know if they couldn't take one of the newspaper's comic strips, the Gumps, for example, and turn it into an air show about married life. Gosden and Carell felt that this was out of their line, neither was married. They suggested an alternative, a dialogue show with a couple of Negro characters. They were told to go ahead. They created Sam and Henry, and the characters caught on quickly after the first broadcast in January 1926. They made a personal appearance tour as Sam and Henry in February 1928. Right after that, their contract with the Tribune ended and they made a better financial arrangement with station WMAQ, operated by the Chicago Daily News. But it developed they couldn't be Sam and Henry any more. The Tribune owned the title and wouldn't give it up. The Tribune hired two other fellows to carry on Sam and Henry, but they didn't last. The pair had to do something at WMAQ, 
So they dreamed up a couple of other characters, called them Amos and Andy, and made their first broadcast March 19, 1928. The new show caught on quickly, and it was not long before other stations wanted to carry it. So they went into the business of supplying recordings of their programs, and soon they had a 45-station makeshift network. The National Broadcasting Company, which by this time gave evidence of being here to stay, in the summer of 1929, called in Gosden and Carell. They were offered a contract calling for their exclusive services for the sum of $100,000 annually. Is it necessary to say that they accepted? On August 19, 1929, they made their first sponsored broadcast for the Pepsodent Company. From then on, it was a snowball going downhill. After a few months, the program time was changed from 11 p.m. to 7 p.m., because of the complaints of listeners in the East that the original time was too late. Kids had no chance to hear it at all. When the change was made, the West Coast squawked because it was too early. So the pair made a repeat broadcast to quiet the Westerners. For years, Corell and Gosden did all the work themselves. They didn't broadcast in blackface. There was no studio audience. In the early days, they wrote the script a few hours before going on the air, five broadcasts a week, Mondays through Fridays. Later, they worked a day or so ahead. Corell typed out the script as it was conceived. It has been estimated that, at its peak, the program had more than 40 million listeners. Other programs since have had fanatical fans, but none has had such rabid listeners as Amos and Andy. People just had to be at their radios when 7 p.m. arrived, come hell or high water. In 1937, the comedians moved their families to Hollywood and settled down. Pepsodent backed the show for nine years and then dropped it because of the firm's change in policy as to the type of program it wanted. The Campbell Soup Company quickly picked up the team. When that contract ended in February 1943, the two decided to take a rest rather than start a new series at the tag end of a season. When Amos and Andy returned to the air in the fall of 1943, the format had been changed. The program was a 30-minute one and was broadcast Friday night only at 10 o'clock on the NBC network. Also, guest stars were used frequently, and the broadcasts were before studio audiences. We don't use guest stars just for the sake of having guest stars, however, Gosden explains. They have to be people who can fit into natural situations with Amos and Andy and the rest of our characters. The program is big business now in the way it is run. Gosden and Carell have an office in Beverly Hills, California, where they keep two secretaries busy. They keep regular hours five days a week, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. They no longer write alone. They employ a staff of five writers and idea men. And the old days of last-minute preparation are out. Now they try to keep six to nine weeks ahead on their scripts. Not that the two of them aren't still capable of sitting down and turning out a script themselves in short order. 
They help contribute to the program ideas, parcel the different parts of the program out to the various writers best fitted for them, and exercise complete final revision rights. There are 23 minutes of dialogue in each of the 30-minute shows. About a fourth of the programs have no guest stars. Aside from its characters, this program will be remembered for the dialect words and phrases it has contributed. The best known of these, one that you heard people using on every side a decade ago, was Oz Regusted. Others included Well, I'll be doggone. Ain't that something? Rest in my brain. I's gonna lay down and think. Splain it to me. Writing dialect for so many years has made it almost impossible for Amos and Andy to write correct English. End of chapter 9 Amos and Andy